Thank you, Steve. How's everybody doing this morning? Excellent. So glad to be with you. It's always a privilege to be here uh, following Mark's footsteps. They're big footsteps, but hopefully we'll have a good time this morning. Talking about everyone's favorite subject, eschatology. Yeah. Now, I, before we begin today, I just want to give a, a kind of word of caution. Anytime I teach theology, it's what I love to do. My master's is in theology. I could talk about it all day long. There's a danger in that, though, and that you kind of create a spiritual gluttony in the people that you speak to about theology or of yourself, because ultimately, good theology, theology that's rightly taught, is supposed to always, always lead to right action. So good theology leads to good action. So if today, by the end of this, all you get is information, then we have not done our job today. The point of even eschatological concerns is to motivate us toward greater Christ-likeness and more faithful ministry to Jesus. So with that in mind, let's pray to the Lord this morning to get us started, and then we'll jump right in. All right? Father, we thank you for the ability to know you. Thank you that through your Holy Spirit you have opened our hearts and our minds and our spirits to the truth of who you are through your revealed word. And we pray that you would even do that more today, God, that as we encounter your word, you would show us more of who you are and who we are to be in you. Father, I pray specifically as we deal with things regarding the end times, Father, we would not become embittered or wrongly impassioned about things in and of themselves, Father, but see in the discussions that you have put forth in your word, Father, how they are meant to motivate us toward greater faithfulness in ministry. Father, may everything that happens today be glorifying to you, for that is our desire in all things. And as always, may you increase and I decrease, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So, in times. As a child, and even today in some senses, I've always had mixed emotions toward eschatology. Maybe some of you guys can relate. I grew up in a um, hellfire and brimstone, kind of Bible-thumping, small Baptist church in North Louisiana. And uh, anybody else grew up in one of those kind of churches, right? And I mean, great church, lovely people, loved my pastor, but man, we were serious about the end times to the point where in our fellowship hall, we had this massive, I mean, took up a whole wall, maybe as one of big, almost as big as one of those dividers back there, a whole wall that had a timeline of eschatological events. You know, as a child, you know, kind of running through the fellowship hall and stuff, you don't really pay attention to things until you see a big dragon coming out of a lake, right? And it caught my attention. And a lot of the discussion that I had had with different people kind of growing up along uh, in the Southern Baptist kind of culture, a lot of the things that kind of surrounded the second coming of Christ, specifically in regards to this particular type of millennial view, really scared me to death as a child. I remember going to bed and waking up panicked that my parents had been raptured and that I was left alone, didn't know what to do with it. I remember driving down the road with my mom and there was, it's a cloudy day. And then all of a sudden the beams of light from the sun kind of just pierced through the clouds in just the right way. You know how it does where these lights kind of show beams. And I really thought the second coming of Christ was coming. And so I started praying and confessing sin, like, Lord, whatever's in me, I do not want to be left behind. Please do not leave me with Kirk Cameron in those movies. You know, I just want to be taken when you take the church. All right. And then you see people, even when I went to LSU, go Tigers, uh, we had like a 
we had a little kind of free speech alley area, and there would be people in there with sandwich boards talking about how Jesus was coming and, you know, we need to repent and going to hell. And there seemed to be all this condemnation and fear associated with the second coming of Christ. And it never made sense to me. Like, why is there all this kind of negativity that I felt at least toward Christ's second coming? Surely that cannot be, at least in terms of how the church should respond, the motivation for sharing Christ's coming. On top of that, when I was younger, I tried to read Revelation. Have you ever tried to read Revelation cover to cover? I mean, if you don't have a good commentary or somebody who knows what they're talking about, it's very confusing. And then how, how is it that what happens in Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel, how do those things impact the way that I'm supposed to read, at least theoretically, Revelation? Like, how does all of this stuff kind of come together? And so for a long time, I just kind of resisted even dealing with any of it, right? We just committed to pantheism. It's all going to pan out in the end, you know, that kind of thing. Not the bad pantheism, the good pantheism, paneschatology, whatever it is. And so we just kind of said, just, I, just, I don't want to spend the time or the energy trying to figure out all of this mess. But ultimately, I know God's just going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But then as I began to study theology um, in seminary, master's level, I just got very convicted by that judgment. You know, we're, we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And including in that is our mind. And the things about God are revealed to us for a reason. We're supposed to pursue him and know him in greater ways so that we can understand in greater ways who we are in him and what we are called to do. There are hard things about Christianity to understand, yes, but that does not excuse us from ignoring them. It should cause us to greater and greater devotion as we seek after the greater things. I mean, we can only hear stories about Noah for so long. But there are greater things attached to the story of Noah. Things about coming judgment that are deeply tied to ultimate judgment that we see in the second coming of Jesus. And so there's a a great need for us to press ourselves and push further into the, the deeper things of the Lord as we seek to worship the Lord with our mind. Ultimately, the discussion we are having today is meant to be a source of joy for us. The second coming of Christ is an incredible thing because in that is the culmination of all of God's redemptive activity throughout the world. And we'll talk more about that as we continue on today. So what is eschatology? Eschatology is simply the study of the last things. And it comes from the Greek word eschata, eschaton, which simply means last. And so it's the study of last things. And it deals with a whole... uh, variety of different subjects. The second coming of Christ, the parousia, of course, deals with heaven and hell. It deals with the nature of the eternal state. What are our bodies like up there? Uh, Will we know each other? All that kind of stuff. And specifically today, I just want to focus on one area of this, the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. We don't have time to go through the entirety of the subject of eschatology. Um, It would take a whole 16-week seminary course, probably more than that, to do it justice. So I don't in any way intend to do that today. So just bear with us as we kind of have to limit our discussion today. Now, the question could become, why are you dealing with 
an overview of eschatology in relation to Thessalonians. Well, if you've even done a brief read-through of Thessalonians, you know that Paul deals with a lot of eschatological topics in First and Second Thessalonians. And there's a reason for that. And it's deeply tied to the historical context in which Paul wrote Thessalonians. And you've, of course, heard a little bit about this, but just so I can make sure we're all on the same page, I want to kind of walk you through how Paul ended up writing these two letters to the Thessalonian church. You're familiar with Thessalonica, you know that it was part of the Macedonian kingdom for a long time. And because of where it's situated, it is an incredible port city. And the Macedonian kingdom, and then later the Roman Empire, saw it for its worth. The Macedonians um, flourished in Thessalonica. And then when the Roman Empire came in later and took it over, they also flourished. Great economic prosperity, great social prosperity. Things were really good in Thessalonica underneath the Roman Empire. And think about the nature of this area just for a moment and understand how devoted the people of Thessalonica would be to the Roman Empire. This area was always in the midst of war. If you've done any kind of Greek history, you know that there was always city-state struggles everywhere for the important cities in the, the Greek area. And then Rome comes in after some instability for a little bit and establishes what's called the Pax Romana, these years of peace. And so as a result of the Roman Empire coming in and establishing peace in this region that allows even greater economic prosperity, there's a lot of devotion to Rome in the leadership of Thessalonica. They don't want to do anything to upset the good thing that got going on. Well, then comes this guy named Paul. And Paul starts talking about this greater emperor than even the Roman emperor. This greater king than any king that we have seen on the planet. Now, at this time, in the Jewish culture, that's what's called a, a militant messianism rising up in the Jewish people. Not everywhere, but enough where it's causing a stir. And basically, the Jewish people were saying there was going to come a time where there was this new leader that was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. Now listen, Rome was a very understanding culture. And they actually preferred people they conquered to keep their religious ideals as long as it did not interfere with the Pax Romana. If it started causing trouble, if it started causing unrest, the Roman Empire would act. Because their chief goal here was peace and security. They wanted to grow, they wanted to grow in stability. They were fine with the Jewish people or even Christians keeping their theology as long as it did not affect the peace of the Roman Empire. Well, this militant messianism in some of the Jewish sects began to, uh, to grow. And as a result, Claudius throws all the Jews out of Rome. He's the emperor at the time. And so there's this great fear among a lot of different city-states around the Roman Empire that the same thing could happen to them and that Rome could come in and squelch the leadership because they did not handle this possible faction in the right way. And so when Paul comes and he starts talking about this Jesus who Rome killed and it's a greater king than even the emperor Claudius, the leadership in Thessalonica gets really concerned because they don't want Rome to come in and steal their authority away. And so as a result, they put a lot of pressure on the church in Thessalonica, including a guy named Jason, to kick Paul out. And so Paul leaves and he goes to Berea. But the Jewish leadership of the day says that's not enough. 
That's not far enough. They kick him out and they send him down to Athens. And that's the kind of background that we see happening undergirding these letters to the Thessalonian church. Well, you could understand then that if Paul is teaching the Thessalonian church a kind of systematic theology of what it means to be a Christian, the doctrine of the Christian church, the last thing that he would cover would be the last things, right? And he gets kicked out of Thessalonica before he's able to finish teaching the Thessalonian church all they need to know about the last things. And as a result, there's great confusion in the Thessalonian church regarding what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back. Things like this. What's going to happen to people who have died before us? Should we bury them? Because if we bury them and Christ comes back, are they going to be able to meet him in the air? Are we prohibiting them from being able to partake in this grand second coming of Christ? And Second Thessalonians, a lot of the church thought that the day of the Lord had already appeared. Have we missed Jesus? Are we in the midst of some great tribulation because we missed Jesus and this is why we're suffering now? And so Paul has to write to them and address these confusions because he was not able to do that in person. Okay? So that's why there's a great eschatological concern in the writings of First and Second Thessalonians, because Paul wasn't able to finish his theological discourse with them, and because of that, there's great confusion. And so, as a result today, in, in light of you studying Acts and then First and Second Thessalonians, we want to make sure that there's not confusion, hopefully, in you as you lead the study of First and Second Thessalonians. We want you to be sure that you at least have a general understanding of what the church teaches and why it's important for us to know different things about the second coming of Christ so that we can be encouraged. Now, before we dive into this, a word of caution. For some reason, actually, I know the reason. It's the enemy. Eschatology has become a very divisive issue in the church. Very divisive. Almost toxic. And we've got to be very careful that we attack different aspects of our theology in a very humble way. And so I want to call all of us today as we approach the Word of God and we approach the study of end times and the last things to be sure that we do it with a humble spirit. At the end of the day, we do not know what's going to happen. We don't. We have very good ideas based on how we read the Scripture that at the end of the day, God's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He's going to be glorified, and we are going to be caught up in that as believers, okay? So just get ready for that. It's going to be a great day. Now, as I said earlier, though, it's our responsibility to try to seek out as much as we can know based on what he has revealed to us in his word. But we should not cross the line to where a discussion about what could happen becomes a reason for disassociating fellowship with one another out of angerness and bitterness, as David Platt says, it's sanctifying for us to disagree about these things. It is sinful to divide over them. It's good for us to have discussion because iron sharpens iron, right? And even when iron sharpens iron, there are sparks that occasionally happen, and that's okay. We can have a family discussion. Anybody ever had a, a pretty tough family discussion? I have. And they're not always comfortable. But what do you do at the end of the day whenever you have them? You leave knowing that you're family, that you love each other, and that you're going to make it through it, right? And we can have those kind of discussions in the church. Now, there are certain things that there is no discussion about. 
the deity of Christ, the incarnation, those are essential to being a Christian. If you disagree with that, then you're not a Christian. Okay, that's as simple as that. The second coming of Christ. None of us in here are going to debate the fact that Jesus is coming again. We all agree on that. The question is, how will he come? There can be discussion about that. There's no debate about we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. If you have a discussion about that, then you're, you're departing orthodoxy. But things like the millennial reign of Christ, certain processes behind the saving work of the Holy Spirit, those things can be family discussions. As long as we believe that there's only one way to Jesus and that's uh, God and that's through the incarnate work of Jesus, then we've got a really good ground to start working from. The things we're talking about today are not orthodox beliefs. They are conviction. They are doctrinal beliefs. If you don't agree with mine or anybody else's view of the millennial reign of Christ, it doesn't mean that either one of us are going to hell as a result of that. It just means that we disagree about certain things that are very hard to understand in the text. It's been said that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. (laughs) And what a shame that that is so true. And so I just want to encourage us today, as we begin our study, do not let... Do not let this become a divisive issue because ultimately the reason it was given to us in every single instance of the New Testament is to encourage us to greater faithfulness in serving the Lord, not to be a distraction from serving him. As John Piper writes, it's on page four of your notes. When you know the truth about what happens after you die and you believe it, and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the age to come, that truth makes you free indeed. Free from the short, shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin and free for the sacrifices of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We must listen to the word of God today and all it teaches humbly, minimizing the thoughts of man and magnifying the truth of God. So with that in mind now, let's jump into a brief overview of some eschatological thought. And basically eschatology is about the kingdom of God fully realized. If you ever just walk through the teachings of Jesus, you will see the theme of the kingdom of God being spoken of over and over and over and over again. And that's because his ministry was designed to usher in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at odds with the kingdom of the flesh. You and I know the gospel in here that God created for a purpose and that purpose was for us to be fully satisfied in him. And as we find satisfaction in him, we're to turn that satisfaction back to him in joyous worship, giving glory and honor to him. That is the reason why every single person, every single thing was created. But you and I rebelled against that purpose. And instead of uh, finding satisfaction and joy in him, we began to find satisfaction and joy in the things that he created in order to point us to him. And as a result of that, you and I earned condemnation. You and I earned judgment. And that sin just did not affect us, causing us to be part of this depravity. It affected the entire world. So that as you and I look around the world today, we see the effects of the fall everywhere. As Pastor David said this morning, the 
the strife and the war in Egypt, in Libya today, in the Sudan, in Syria, are all the result of sinful humanity falling and living in a sinful world. That's a result of human sinfulness upon this planet. And yet the beautiful hope of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ is that is not the future. Those things are not hopeless. That because of the work of Jesus, you and I, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, have the ability to speak into the, even the gravest of consequences of the fall of man and speak in that hope. The possibility of reconciliation and restoration, all because of what Jesus did. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most powerful event in all of human history because it is a blip on the radar of all that is to come. And the same way that Jesus Christ died and then was raised again in a new form, in a glorified form, so every single thing that has been created will pass away and be raised up and made new, specifically for us if we are in Christ. This earth will pass away and be made new. Heaven will pass away and be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth connected by a new Jerusalem filled with a new glorified people who have given their lives to the lordship and saving work of Jesus Christ. And as the church, we are to push that agenda forward in the absence of Jesus physically as his hands and his feet. We are called to build the kingdom of God. We are called to look at mankind who is burdened with sinfulness and tell them about the hope that we have in Jesus, both here and hereafter. We are called to go to places that are overwrought with poverty, like Haiti and Kenya. And we are called to speak into that and help in any way we can because that poverty, that disease is a result of the fall of man. And we are called to come against that as the church, building the kingdom of God in opposition to the kingdom of flesh. Now we understand that these kingdoms are at war and there will be tension as one kingdom overtakes the other. But at the end of the day, we also understand that Christ's victory is not in question. The victory of Christ is secure. The fact that he overcame the, the consequences of sin and death by being resurrected on the third day guarantees us that at the end of the day, his kingdom will prevail. And nothing will stand in the way of it prevailing. Now, the question for us this morning is, how will this kingdom be fully realized? How will he come back? How will he establish this millennial kingdom that we see put forth for us in Revelation chapter 20? How will all of this happen? We know it will happen. We know that Christ will come back and that his victory will be secure. But how will it happen, and how does that encourage us as we move forward in the work of the Lord? A quick um, quote here from a guy named Alistair McGrath says this, The New Testament is saturated with the belief that something new has happened in the history of humanity, in and through the life and death of Jesus Christ, and above all his resurrection from the dead. Later on, Hamilton's quote, 
All the apocalyptic literature written by Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and found in Revelation look forward to a climactic display of salvation through judgment for the glory of God. The apocalyptic consummation of all things will fulfill the hopes for a final exodus from bondage to corruption and a return from the exile from Eden. And the descriptions of the new heaven and earth, God's people worship him for the justice he continues to uphold against his enemies as he reigns as our eternal king over all things. The resurrection indeed gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will be. So, how does this kingdom come? Now, we're going to talk about this ushering in of the kingdom of God by talking about three primary millennial views. Now, the millennium is defined generally as a thousand-year period of peace that will come in which Christ will reign with his church over a new creation. Okay? So the question is, Is that a literal thousand years and a literal reign? And if so, how will it be ushered in? That's the question we're going to talk about today because ultimately that's going to be our security. And trusting that God will come and establish an eternal justice in that second coming. Some questions we want to consider this morning from David Platt. Is the millennium before Christ returns? Or after Christ returns? Is the millennium present, happening now, or future still to come? How long is the millennium? Literally a thousand years? Or is the millennium simply stated perfect, uh, simply a perfect planned limited time? What and where? Will the millennium involve a physical resurrection of Christians to reign on earth during the millennium? Or will the millennium involve a spiritual resurrection of Christians to reign in heaven during the millennium? Now there are three basic views that answer these questions. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. All right? So you guys are getting your uh, Friday night dinner talk all secure today, right? You can throw big words around like eschatology, right? Little party favors. Hey guys, let's play a little game today. What's eschatology mean? Or premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. These are really great, big, fancy words that you can impress people with, all right? So just get ready for that. So I want to I want to walk through each different view today briefly, kind of give you an overview of what each one teaches, and then I want to come to a conclusion um, that is healthy for all of us, okay? The first one is this. Well, actually, before I say that, remember, when we're approaching this, we're approaching it from a reading of Revelation that must be understood in its historical context, okay? Now, understand, Revelation was not given to the people of the church then to promote endless, hopeless speculation about the future. But rather, the words written in Revelation were given to that people to fuel hopeful obedience in their present, It's very important for you to remember that. Revelation was not written to give them some code or key about the future they were supposed to unlock. No, it made sense to the people who read it then. It was perfectly clear to them to fuel and motivate faithful ministry in that time. Now, it can have future implications 
but it did not have a meaning that was unknown to the people at the time that was reserved for a future generation that could only know it. Does everybody, everybody make sense? Okay. It had to make sense to them in that, in that moment to fuel their ministry. Important for us to think about as we move forward. Now, premillennialism. Premillennialism. Pre-millennialism okay, sorry. Easy for me to say, right? Premillennialism. There we go. Premillennialism is pretty self-evident. The idea here is that Christ will return for his church before the millennial reign of Jesus. Right? Millennial reign of Christ, okay? So again, we're talking about Revelation 20. There's a millennial reign that's established, a thousand years of peace. And premillennialism says that there will be a time when Jesus will come back and he will establish that reign as he comes back. Now, there will be some things that happen before that. Things like a seven-year period of great tribulation. And in fact, the earth is moving toward that even as we speak. There will be a degradation of culture that will go down into a nasty time of seven years of terrible tribulation at the end of which Jesus will come back and finish that period of tribulation and establish his millennial kingdom. Then there will be a thousand year reign in which Satan will be bound. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be unleashed again. There will be one final epic battle in which Satan will be ultimately defeated, cast aside, and then the eternal state will begin. Now, within premillennialism, there are two major camps. There's historic premillennialism and dispensational, dispensational premillennialism. Okay. I'm just going to say pre-mill from now on. Is that okay? Pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. It's like a tongue tie, you know? Just try to say it over and over again. It's pretty fun to get after. All right. Now, historic pre-mill says this. Historic pre-mill says that the church will go through the tribulation and that Jesus will come back after that, rescue the church, and then establish peace. It's basically the idea. There will be a tribulation. There will be a second coming of Christ. But there will be no rapture as is defined by dispensational premillennialism. Okay? So historic pre, historic pre mill says everything that, that all premillennial says. There's going to be a degradation toward a bottomness of culture. Ultimately, there will be a seven-year focus of great tribulation at the end of which Christ will come and the church will go through that. Dispensational premillennialism says that this last wave is one of seven dispensations over time and that before the tribulation happens, Christ will come back and rapture up his church. The church is not the focus of the seven years of tribulation, the great judgment upon the earth. And so the Lord will not cause the church to go through that. Christ will come back in a third coming back and secretly take up the church from the earth before the, uh, before the tribulation happens. And they get that from like 1 Thessalonians 4 and other readings of Revelation. 1 Thessalonians 4 does not clearly say that there's a rapture. The idea of being caught up is there, but that's tied to an interpretation of Revelation in which at some point the church, the church ceases to be mentioned. Okay? So that's the big camps of premillennialism. Premillennialism says that the earth will get worse until Christ comes back, ultimately ending in seven really bad years of tribulation. And either Christ will come for his church before it or after it. Okay? Everybody good there? That's premillennialism. Oh, I should also say this. Within 
specifically the dispensational side of premillennialism, you'll see a great focus on the nature and nation of Israel. Uh, They keep Israel a separate entity from the church. And as a result, there's a great concern for what happens with Israel because they believe that in the unfolding of this last dispensation, that there are going to be signs and wonders that anticipate the coming of Christ. And a lot of that is attached specifically to the nation of Israel. So when you see unrest like there is in Egypt and Syria, all around the nation of Israel, they would teach that to be a function of the times. That as the area around Israel becomes greater and greater in terms of instability, that that's suggesting that Christ's return is ever increasingly imminent. Okay? Postmillennialism. Now, postmillennialism has lost its fervor along the years. Um, it's not really adhered to a lot today. There are still some who teach it today. By the way, in your notes, at the beginning of each section, I've also put a book there for you and a footnote that will elaborate on these at a great deal if you have any more interest about it, okay? But postmillennialism has kind of gone off the ranch a little bit. Nobody really adheres to it anymore. There are some people who really um, promote it, but for reasons you'll see in just a minute, it doesn't really sound as sound as it once did. Now, postmillennialism says that Christ will come at the end of the millennial reign. He'll reign from heaven. He will descend at the end and usher in the eternal state. And the idea is that Christianity and the gospel are so powerful in the world now that the world will continue to get better and better and better, ultimately coming to a place where all of culture will be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that will usher in the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. And so as the church goes out and we're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it impacts societies, it impacts cultures, laws, everything is going to be impacted by the church and its message. And as a result, at some point in the future, the world will come to a place of salvation. Everything will be impacted by the gospel in a positive way, even before Christ comes back. And this was greatly believed Uh, 18th, 19th century early America by American theologians, you could see why. They come to the new land. They see great potential. It's based on Christian ideals. They believe this nation is going to be a hope of all other nations. It's going to be a Christian nation. And that's going to be a realization of eschatological truths. That kind of went out the window though with World War II. And that's when you see this idea really kind of going off the end because it's hard to look at the face of World War I and World War II and see that the world is actually getting better in the face of such great depravity and mass killings and just terrible evil. It's hard for post-millennialism to stand. Now, there, those who adhere to it today would say it's just kind of a blip on the radar and that we are getting better and better over time and that it is kind of growing in that regard, but it's very loose today, the adherence of post-millennialism. The other major view today, besides premillennialism, which is premillennialism is really prevalent in evangelical world, but amillennialism is usually the larger view in kind of mainline Protestantism and actually is growing a lot in the evangelical world today as well. And amillennialism sees the millennial reign as a metaphor or a symbol. 
It's not an actual literal reign, but it's a function of what is happening presently in the church age. Let me just read for you the definition of it that I took from Wayne Grudem. According to the amillennial view, this position teaches that the passage of Revelation 21 through 10 describes the present church age. This is an age in which Satan's influence over the nations has been greatly reduced. So the, bi- the binding of Satan that you see coming at the end of the Great Tribulation has already happened in some sense in the amillennial view to allow the gospel to move forward as it is moving forward even presently today. Those who are said to be reigning with Christ for the thousand years are Christians who have died and are already reigning with Christ in heaven. Christ's reign in the millennium, according to this view, is not a bodily reign here on earth, but rather a spiritual reign, okay? So you get the idea here that it's not a, a literal view of a millennial reign that will come at the end of a great tribulation period, but when Christ sent the Holy Spirit onto the church, it began this church age that bound Satan and, al- and allowed now for the gospel to be pushed forth throughout the nations. And there are some positives to this view. On one hand, it does show that the gospel is moving forward. There is progress. Generally, the premillennial view has a lot of pessimism attached to it, and not in a negative way pessimistic, but just in an idea of their worldview. Things are going to get really bad before they get better. And so in some ways, there's a a discouragement about going forth, because why would you go forth if everything's going to get bad anyway, right? Now, luckily for us in the evangelical world, that, that kind of pessimism doesn't reach into our zeal for evangelism or missions, but it could if you're not careful. Amillennialism, though, does show how the gospel is moving forward in great ways and accounts for the persecution of the church today. It's hard to reconcile sometimes how we would say that God would rapture us up from the persecution that is coming in the tribulation, and yet there is severe persecution happening around the world even now. As you heard Pastor David say this morning, A 10-year-old girl was shot coming home from a Bible study in Egypt because she's a Christian. Now, the premillennial camp would say that the persecution we're experiencing now has nothing on what is coming. But the amillennial camp says we are experiencing persecution even now. Because ultimately, we are going to be persecuted as Christ was persecuted, so that in the same way he descended to be glorified, we could be descended to, we we could descend and also to become glorified. Now, I'm running out of time. If you would like more information about those, see the books. Now, I want to get to the big idea for today, okay? At the end of the day, whatever camp you fall into, the goal, the point of all of it is that the second coming of Christ is supposed to be a word of encouragement to us. It's supposed to be encouragement to us. It's supposed to be fuel for our ministry. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, So, in light of that, stand firm. In the face of countless persecution and constant resistance, stand firm because Christ is coming back and he will establish a kingdom and his justice will take care of those people who are persecuting you even now. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers. 
We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then what does he say in verse 18? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Second Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled and, and marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you as believed. First Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do, not, you do, not, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The, the discussion here is not about the nature of Christ's return. The subject here is that Christ will return, and as a result of that, you should be encouraged. And listen, the early church needed some encouragement. Think of the time that Peter is writing. And the reign of Nero, for instance, where Nero is blaming Christians for the fire that took down a lot of the city. And as a result, there's great persecution going out against them to the point now where Nero is dipping Christians in wax and lighting them on fire to light his garden parties. Tearing them apart limb from limb for sport, allowing dogs to come and tear them apart as they put animal clothes on them. People are seeing their families literally be ripped apart for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're asking themselves, is this worth it? The Thessalonians are adhering to this Roman ideal of peace and security. In fact, you see Paul directly address this in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, there are some of you who say, I find peace and security in Rome, and that pox et securitas is a Roman ideal that was actually printed on the coinage of the day to talk about how you can only have peace and security in Rome. People are thinking about leaving the church because they don't want to create controversy in their community and lose the power that Rome has given them. And Paul says, listen, there will come a day where Rome will not be able to give you peace and security because Christ is coming with a vengeance and he will not be coming on a donkey this time. 
Be careful of where you find peace and security. Devote your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even when people around you are dying for the sake of the gospel, realize it is worth it because we are at odds with the kingdom of the flesh and the kingdom of God will be victorious. We have a living hope. They can take away a whole bunch of stuff from you guys, but we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. No one can ever take that away from you because Christ is victorious. Serve the Lord faithfully. Serve him with everything that you have. Give everything you have to him because he will come back for you. Those people who persecute you, they will have their day. You just be faithful and trust in the sovereignty of God and his divine justice. You be faithful the disease in your life, it's going to be overcome. The poverty around you, it will be overcome. And you as the church have an obligation to speak into that now. Racial, ethnic strife, economic strife, you have an, the responsibility to speak into that now, but ultimately know that Christ will come and undo it all permanently. People offend you because of the gospel. Christ will judge them one day. You simply be faithful. The question should not be for us how the kingdom of God will come to the point where we allow that to become divisive and the only thing that we get out of the study of the last things. The question should be, how does this reality fuel me for greater faithfulness? And the second that that becomes a distraction from faithful ministry, where all we're doing is debating over the way in which Christ will come, the moment it has become as sinful as anything else that distracts from the Lord. Every single scripture we have dealing with the second coming of Christ is always, always, always meant to be a word of encouragement to press us forward into greater faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to ultimately communicate us to us the victory he has over all things. Christ has overcome. So here's my question for you this morning. I don't know what baggage you have brought today to this class. Some of you have maybe have been the, the recipient of some sinful actions of men. Maybe you've been persecuted because of your race. Maybe someone has acted out on you because of a, a terrible addiction. Maybe someone has persecuted you literally because of your faith in Jesus Christ. The encouragement to you today is that Christ has victory over all of those things. They do not define you. Christ defines you. Maybe some of you in here have been struggling with a sin for a long time. And you don't know how to overcome it. You're steeped in this addiction. My friends, Christ has overcome that addiction. Whatever effect of the fall you find in your life, it has been overcome by Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have victory in Christ. Claim that victory upon your life. Live in that victory. And ultimately for all of us, we have no excuse to be afraid from serving the Lord faithfully. 
We have no excuse to not go out with empowered spirits to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to serve the Lord and to build his kingdom, anticipating when he comes back, however he will come back. Because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, we've been encouraged by the resurrection, and we have been guaranteed certain victory. Let me pray for you guys. Father, I pray you would take these words and encourage us today. Help us to allow them to become things that move us toward you, not distract us from you. God, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in such incredible ways and you have provided for us through the work of Jesus, both here and now. We anticipate the coming of Jesus and the the full establishing of his kingdom. And even though it's not yet already present here, we understand that elements of it are here as we seek to overcome the effects of the fall. May you be glorified in our devotion as we seek to follow you in a manner that is worthy of the calling of God upon our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.